going on muscle monsters align gonzalez here and welcome to another episode of the muscle masterminds where we take one of the leading experts in this field and we deep dive into a specific topic in this episode we are joined by dr mike isriatel he's a professor of exercise science at temple university in philadelphia pennsylvania he's got a phd in sports physiology He's a jiu-jitsu practitioner, a competitive powerlifter, bodybuilder, and an all-around badass. And I'm very, very excited to have him on. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So uh, in these, on this series, basically what we do is we get into just one very specific topic, and uh, we go deep, Right. And so today I want to talk about probably one of the most important variables in training, one that most people either overlook, overcomplicate, or just don't understand, and that is progression, right? Because without progression, we're not getting better, we're not going to get bigger. Um, and so let's start off by, by kind of just talking about what the importance of progression is when the goal is to build muscle. Yeah, so like progression is basically one of the offshoots or the implications of the principle of training, which is the overload principle. And that principle basically says that there have to be two conditions for muscle to grow best. One, the training has to push that muscle sort of within its limit ranges of ability, its uh, adaptive threshold. So training's got to be hard. And also training has to get harder over time because your physiology gets used to the same stimulus and just won't really grow much anymore unless you challenge it. So progression is the second part of that definition, and it means that you have to continuously make uh, training more and more challenging in some way to produce uh, more muscle growth. Got it. And so I think when, when we talk about progression, sometimes we oversimplify it by saying things like, you need to get stronger, you need to focus on strength. And a lot of the time guys think, well, well, shit, um, you know, What's the? How am I going to grow if I'm just focusing on trying to get my bench press to 405, things like that? So for someone who is at a point in their training and maybe adding more weight to the bar just isn't possible, right? Assuming they're they've been training for a while, um, their training is solid, periodized in a way that allows them to maximize that. Um, what are some things that you might recommend for someone who's kind of going to try to get to that next level, but doesn't necessarily have the ability to just keep slapping weight onto the bar? Mm. Well, I think uh, first you have to figure out how it is you're slapping weight onto the bar. And most importantly, you know, if you're training for like one set of five to be your best or even a single, then you're training to get stronger to some extent. But um, if you're training for muscle size, the most important vol uh, determinant there is volume, is your training volume. And so long as you're going, you know, not too far away from failure, like four reps in reserve uh, or closer, the volume is so dominant that they've shown that, you know, training with 30 or 40% of your one rep max, you can consistently get pretty similar gains to training with, you know, 80% of your one rep max, as long as the total sets times reps times weight is the same. So I think one of the things you have to focus on is making sure your volume is where it should be between kind of your minimum effective volume and the maximum recoverable volume. And then once it's there, I think you can um, focus on getting stronger, but within the rep ranges and volume amounts that you're specified. So for example, if you go from a 500 pound squat to a 600 pound squat, you're probably going to grow quite a bit of muscle, but you're more reliably going to grow muscle. If you go from, let's say being able to do 80 reps in a workout with 365 pounds versus 80 reps in a workout with 405 pounds. The weight change was not as big, but the amount of total added volume or how much weight you're using at your usual volumes is, is a really big factor. And I think one of the biggest correlates and causes 
of big muscles and um my uh, my coach slash consultant Broderick Chavez and I were talking about this uh, extensively earlier is one of the biggest components of muscle size is basically what's your best 10 by 10 in a particular muscle group or exercise. If that's going up, then you're getting bigger. Um, if your singles and doubles are going up or your sets of five are going up, but your volume tolerance is really not, then you're definitely getting stronger, mostly working on your nervous system, but that's not going to show itself off in muscle. And if you get the best bodybuilders on the planet together, the guys with the biggest body parts, and you know, they're 10 sets of 10, the most weight they can use there is going to, I think, be very, very correlated to how big those muscles are. So if you go look at a guy with absolutely huge legs, he may or may not have an unbelievable squat for a singular set of five, but it's very likely, especially if he gets the technique down, that he's going to be able to do a crazy amount of volume and weight. And I think it's really important to focus that when you're progressing, it should be in the repetition ranges you know, anywhere between six to 20 reps usually is a productive growth range. Uh, you should be looking to get stronger in the, in that repetition range for multiple sets, not just one set. Okay. And so, and so you mentioned something, and this is kind of something that I've heard you mention multiple times in different interviews. And, and it's pretty fascinating. The idea of an MRV or what is it? Maximum recoverable volume. Can mm-hmm. you kind of talk Talk about that a little bit and what it is and why it's important for us to know that. And maybe you know, how, how can we figure out what ours is? Sure. So maximum recovery volume is the most amount of work you can do in any given time. I usually use about a week as the, the time uh, scale. Uh, it's the most you can do and still recover. And recover means you come back and you can repeat the same amount, uh, same kind of workout, same sets and reps, etc., If you uh, do way more volume than you're going to recover from, because we have to understand that volume uh, of training is the amount of work your body is doing, you can do so much that you're not able to recover within a given unit time. Like if you usually do 10 sets of 10 in the squat and I have you do, you know, 20 sets of 10 for several weeks, there's no way you're going to be be recovered from that. And you're just actually going to start to get worse and worse by definition, not return to your normal baseline of performance. And you're going to start to under recover. So uh, that's a pretty bad deal, and so we know that training a lot is a good idea, but maximum recovery volume kind of puts the top end on that and says anything above this is too much. And on the other hand, your minimum effective volume is on the other side of that. Minimum effective volume is how much do you need to train to actually see any benefit? Because like, let's say you've been training for five years. Just doing one set per body part per week is not going to grow you at all. As a matter of fact, it's just going to barely slow down how fast you lose muscle. So we have to make sure that when we're training, we're training at least at our minimum effective volume, but not so much that we're exceeding our maximum recoverable. That's kind of the golden zone for training, and everything within there is gravy. My personal idea is to start every mesocycle close to minimum effective volume and move up in volume as you go over the weeks to eventually hit your maximum recoverable volume, deload, and then repeat. And I think that stepwise manner is probably the best way to put on muscle especially over the long term. I think while you're going up in volumes, adding set numbers is a good way to do it. There are some complexities with adding repetitions that we can get into as why that's maybe not the greatest way to add volume but um, or progression. Uh, but I think that adding weight to the bar every single week or more or less every single week, just small amounts of weight, not only does it boost the intensity of your training, which is how much weight you're using, but also that multiplies the volume side of the equation because volume is sets times reps times weight. So if your sets and reps are the same, but your weight is going up, you're doing more volume, and that's more of a stimulus for your muscles to grow. Gotcha. Okay, so just to get a little bit practical, right? Because obviously you can't just say, hey, you know, start off with this many sets and this many reps and then increase for everyone because everyone's at a different point in their training. You kind of just give us, like, say, for example, somebody who's kind of brand new to training. Um, maybe they've just been uh, training for, I don't know, six months, linear progression. Um, gains have slowed down. Um, you know, they're not really on a periodized model in the sense that um, they're strategically maybe adding sets um, or reps. They've just been, for the for the most part, just kind of increasing the weight as I go, but then that kind of slows down. And so now they want to maybe add more sets, add more reps. Is there some kind of like a template maybe you could provide that, that would kind of give them a better idea of what they could do for training? Yeah, absolutely. I think they should continue to make things harder. That is do more and more sets um, every week or two weeks until they start to encounter recovery problems. 
Like they're doing so much work that they don't come in a strong the next week. So for example, if you usually squat 225 pounds for like five sets of 10, that's your average general strength, four sets of 10. If you're overreached, if you're exceeding your MRV, next week you're going to come back and squat 225 for maybe one set of 10, and it's going to start to go eight, seven, six, five, five, four, or something like that. And then you know that, oh, geez, I'm really off my game. And then you say, okay, maybe I've hit my maximum recoverable volume. You notice, you note how many total working sets for legs that you did that, you know, that, uh, that last week. You kind of remember that number. Let's say it's 20, just, uh, just as an example. You deload because you're pretty messed up and it's time to take a break. You deload for a week. Very easy, very light training, very low volume. And then after you do that, you come back and try to you know, go much lower than that number. Maybe start with 10 sets or something like that. Add weight every week. Add a set or two here and there. Work your way back up. You might find uh, that once you approach 20 sets per week again, again, recovery starts to be a real big problem. So now you've got two trial runs at it. And both trials say, yeah, something special at 20 sets per week. You just, it's not a hiccup anymore. It's not by accident. I think if you do that three times, that kind of run at the max number, you start to get a pretty good feel of what your MRV is. And a lot of bodybuilders at a very high level who have trained a long time, they don't even know the term MRV, but they know intuitively how much they can handle and how much is too much. Like if you come up to a really well-trained bodybuilder and you say, hey, do you want to join me for this workout? It's going to be 1,000 total reps. They're probably going to be like, you know, no thanks. That's, I'm not going to recover from that. That's insane. So that's how you find your MRV. For your minimum effective volume, it's a little trickier. But sort of every time you come to a new training block, you can try starting the sets a little lower than usual. So maybe you started at 10 sets last training block. Try starting at eight sets the training block uh, after that. So you start even lower on the, on the chart, on the progression. And you're kind of looking for there's, – there's more quantitative ways I could get in. I've gotten into in articles, and we're going to be putting out a book soon talking extensively about this. But if you're first – like week at sets of just just eight sets total for a body part, let's say eight sets of legs. If, if you don't get hardly sore at all, you don't even get a pump, you feel like a million bucks the week after, that's probably below your minimum effective volume. One way, a very sort of um, informal way to detect your minimum effective volume is it's the first amount of volume that's like, ooh, okay, I felt something. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you train and you're like, that was a workout. But at the very bare minimum, if, if you just run through a workout and you're like, I didn't feel a damn thing, I can just repeat this workout as a joke right after, you're probably under your minimum effective. But imagine if I had you come in and do three sets of squats. You'd be like, okay, so what's next? You're like, that, that's it. You're going to grow the rest of the week. You'd be like, no, I'm not, right? So if, you know, so, so some people, they overshoot their MEV because they always kind of want to push way too hard all the time. So you got, might have individuals that have a true minimum effective volume for legs, let's say, of 10 sets per week. That's an actual MEV, but they might just be sort of pushing it hardcore, and they might start every mesocycle at 15 sets, right? So they start a mesocycle, and they're already super messed up because 15 is a lot, and then they just train for a couple of weeks. They hit 20, and they bow out. That's too much. What they don't realize is if they maybe played around with going down to 13 the next time around, just 13 sets, but of course, it's going to be heavier weight because they've gotten stronger. They might go, oh, man, you know, 13 sets, I thought it was going to be nothing, but it was still a pretty good challenge. And then the next month or next mess cycle, they might go down to 11 or something like that. And they might may say, oh, my God, 11 still feels like a, like a decent workout. This isn't bad at all. And then they go, oh, maybe my MEV is even lower. And they go down to nine the month after that at the beginning of the mess cycle. And nine just doesn't feel like anything. Mm, yeah, 10 or so is probably where the minimum effective volume is. And every now and again, as you train, you have to be very keen. That's why your, your training notebook and writing things down is so important, not only writing down your performance, but also how you felt just generally is a real good idea because after you keep a journal like that for years, not only do you get a really good feel of where your minimum effective volume is, your maximum recoverable, so you can write really, really, uh, I guess, elegant programs that you never have to guess if the program is going to stimulate you, you know, you can also be keen on adjusting those variables. So for example, like as you train longer and longer, especially as an intermediate, your minimum effective volume tends to go up, but your maximum recoverable volume tends to go up as well. So you used to be able to come into the gym and hit, hit eight sets of squats total per week and just be like, wow, that was clearly a workout. That hit me hard. But then after a couple of years, eight sets might just be a warm-up at that point, and then you know maybe you need to go to 10, and then a couple months later, maybe you need to go to 12 or like a couple of years, right? So always keeping track of how you're feeling, et cetera, is a really good thing. And of course, your maximum recoverable volume can change. It might go up. You know, it used to be that 16 sets of back was like the most you could handle, but your back's gotten used to training, and now it can train 20 or 22 sets before it starts to be able to 
or starts to run into recovery problems. So I think keeping tabs on all those variables, how little you can do and still grow, how much, the most you can do and still grow, and then just train within that range going up through the range and then deloading up through the range deloading. And the entire time, yeah, your sets, you just go from 10 to 20 and 10 to 20 or maybe 12 to 22, 12 to 22, and that's every you know mesocycle or like you know four to eight weeks of training before deload. You think, man, but we're just recycling the same volumes over and over. Yeah, but the weights you're using get heavier and heavier over the months. So you used to recycle, you used to do 10 sets with 225 and cycle up to, you know, you know, 20 sets with 250 pounds in the squat, let's say, per week, just a simple example. Eventually, you know, you'll be doing 10 sets with 275 and 20 sets with 305. You know, that's a very, very different workout, and that's, I think, uh, one of the fundamental keys to get bigger. So I really do think that progression has a lot of advantages being weight-based, but I think that um, while I'm ranting, a lot of people think that means you slap on like another 45 every couple of weeks. That's nonsense. You don't make gains that fast, especially in immediate advance. You might be adding two and a half pounds to the bar, five pounds to the bar, and that's totally okay. You might spend as an advanced guy most of your training cycles doing basically the same weights you did in training cycles before just for slightly more reps and slightly more sets. And then only at the tail end of your mesocycle, maybe like the week or two before you deload, are you really hitting all-time PRs with weights. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just one of those things where I think when a lot of guys say, well, I'm just not getting stronger anymore, they don't mean that at all. They think they do. What they mean is I'm not getting crazy stronger. Well, no mm -hmm. shit. You know, you're not supposed to be. And there's not like a 700-pound squatter that's like adding 45 pounds to a squat every week. That's nonsense. But when you're a beginner, you kind of get used to that sort of thing. You know what I mean? I don't think it's a good idea to get used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so then I would ask you this, because obviously there's going to be guys who maybe feel like they are recovered from, from the training, right? Um, and they say, yeah, I can definitely handle this. But when I try to add, you know, five pounds or two and a half pounds to the bar, I can't quite complete the volume that I'm aiming for. Do you think that's, do you think that's pretty standard? Or do you think that when you are when you do have your training set up this way, that that doesn't actually happen. And if, and if it does, does that mean that you're not actually recovered? So there's two, two different kinds of problems you're going to run into with a lot of training towards the end of a mesocycle. Um, one problem is if you simply aren't getting strong as fast as you had planned, then what ends up happening is you don't get as many reps as you thought and you start hitting failure early, but it's a very soft form of failure in the sense that, you're not, your performance doesn't drop off radically. It just drops off predictably based on, you know, like the Bryce Dickey formula. Like if you can do a 10 RM with this much weight, which, how, many, how much weight could you do 9 RM with, et cetera. So, for example, if someone's bench pressing and they did 225 last week for sets of, you know, let's say a set, I just keep it super simple, a set of 10, right? Then this next week, even though they're still below their MRV, they might hit 235 for a set of 9. And they go, damn it, I couldn't do 10. But 235 for a set of 9 and 225 for a set of 10 – that converts to roughly the same physical ability. You know what I mean? The MRV, when you pass that, it actually looks very different. That's when you, your numbers drop off considerably. So you'll go from one week doing 225 for 10 to the next week doing it for uh, you know 235 for 6 or for 4. And that does not convert. Something happened to you. That's when you know it's under recovery. So then you deload repeat and just try to bump up the numbers. And a lot of it comes down to realistic goals. So, for example... You know, if your nutrition is good and your rest and recovery is good, et cetera, and your training is logical, you know, as an intermediate, if you plan to hit five to 10 pound PRs on exercises every mesocycle, you know, 48 weeks of training, that's really good, man. That's like 40 pounds a year on your lifts. That's really good. I think some people, again, the, the 45 pound example, they're like, I used to be able to hit 25 pound PR every six weeks but I can't like well, that shit is those days are over. Now it's about hitting five pound PRs. But listen, if you add enough five pound PRs together and you're cycling through and getting high volumes all the time, you will grow considerably and you will keep growing. So I think that, you know, it's one of those questions, kind of a trick question. It's like, what do you do when the games stop coming as far as strength? You just set your goals lower and still gain a little bit of strength. It just has to be repetition strength for sets of, you know, anywhere between six reps and 20 reps uh, and it has to be over multiple sets. And once you're PRing over multiple sets, like, wow, I've never done six sets of 10 with that much weight. But even if it's only two and a half pounds more than you've ever done six sets of 10 with or five pounds, that's just the rate of progression at that point. 
and uh, there's probably not a way to get you know super around that number. Another way of progressing, if things really slow down for you, or if the weight jumps are too big, you can try to progress in repetitions, and that's okay within a narrow range. One of the reasons I said earlier repetition progression is like meh is because if you're still progressing fast, you just exit your repetition range really easily, and then the exercise isn't really – uh, it's not targeting what you think it is anymore. So for example, if you target your pull-ups um, to hit the big fast twitch muscle fibers right in your back, but then you do pull-downs for higher reps to hit slow twitch muscle fibers, and let's say you just add reps to pull-ups, well, pretty soon you'll be doing like 12 uh, you know, reps and 15 reps for pull-ups, but that's not targeting your fast twitch muscle fibers anymore. That's not just now two slow twitch exercises. So if you, if you add reps, you can just quickly leave the rep range that you want. So if you say, okay, I want to target fast twitch muscle fibers and pull-ups. I'm going to keep all my reps between sets of um, six and sets of 10. Well, then you'll have to start adding weight. Does that make sense? So that's why I'm not a big fan of, of adding reps. You can add sets. That's great. You can add weight. That's great. But if you add reps, it gets tricky if the reps are added too fast. However, if the, everything is going up slow, you can play with reps. For example, um, uh, dumbbell presses. Like at my gym, there's uh, 75 pound dumbbells and 80 pound dumbbells. And I'm doing like really high rep training right now for my chest. So I'll incline, I've inclined the 75s for like the last month. I haven't moved up to the 80s yet, but I'm adding like one to two reps every workout. So I started at like, I think like 18 or 16 reps with a 75. And now I'm up to like, I think I did 27 reps in my last workout with uh, 75s uh, on incline. It's, that's generally the same range, right? It's a very high rep exercise anyway. So, and I've been ad adding just one or two reps at a time. That's a cool way to progress if you think that the weight jump is too big. Because, you know, especially with dumbbells, the 75 is a very different weight than the 80. You know what I mean? That's a big percent change. That's five pounds in each hand. That's not, you know, total. And, and especially in other exercises like uh, curls, bicep curls. I mean, the 35s and the 40s are literally as big of a distance between them relatively as 350-pound squat and a 400-pound squat. I mean, you don't do 350 one week and then do to 400 next week. That's insane. You go with 360, right, or 355, something like that. Because dumbbells are such big increments, sometimes let's say you can do the 35s for curls for three weeks in a row. You hit sets of 10 one week, sets of 11 the other week, and sets of 12 the last week. And then maybe you can start the 40s in sets of eight. Does that make sense? So you might have to get creative with the repetition additions, but if your reps are adding so fast that they're exiting the rep range, that just tells me that you could have still added plenty of weight and been in the same rep range anyway. Gotcha. So now let's get into um, something that might be maybe a little bit more advanced, maybe not, but I've heard you talk about this quite a bit um where it's you know for example our main leg movement right now is the squat and that's been our focus for our leg training for the neck for the last i don't know 12 12 weeks um and then uh i believe you recommended maybe changing your focus to maybe a leg press for the next you know several weeks and then possibly going back to the squat at some point just because if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you're basically not getting the same kind of adaptations. Maybe that's the wrong word, but sure. could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think you said that very well. Um, so basically your body just gets used to the same stuff over and over. And even if it's uh, hard training, it'll just get, it'll get um, stagnant in its ability to adapt to it. So after a while, you know, even if you're trying to progress on squats, it's just not a novel enough stimulus. Your body's already expecting the same force vectors, the same bar position and everything, and it just won't adapt because the body generally adapts pretty well to stimuli that are novel. Now, if you have too much novelty, your body doesn't know which direction to adapt in. It overwhelms everything, and it's just trying to recover at that point. So it's not a good idea to do a different workout every day or every week, just do a different thing for legs. And there's also something to be said for momentum. Like once you get in the groove of squatting, you can start adding plenty of weight and plenty of sets and reps. You don't get a sore anymore, so you can do more volume and get more benefit for the, for the same amount of return, right? Could you hear me pretty well through that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. I, I had a weird flash on my screen. So uh, basically, um, after a while, um, you... Uh, come in, you still do the same set, sort of uh, attempt at progression, but let's say you've been training squats only for six months. I mean, you're basically getting no soreness no matter how much volume you do. 
And it's not really that we're chasing soreness so much as that this is an indicator that's nothing really getting disrupted. And you'll also notice that correlates very well to a pretty big lack of gains, right? Your body's just used to it. It feels stale. Another good reason of variation is injury risk. If you squat and squat and squat and squat, your knees are getting basically aggravated in the exact same pattern every time. So after a while, something's going to start to hurt. You, we've all known guys in the gym that can't bench press anymore because all they did was bench press for like 40 years. And they're like, well, my shoulders don't work anymore. It's like, well, maybe you should have backed away from benching and done some inclined dumbbells for a while. Different kind of stressor lets the parts that your shoulders are aggravated with for the bench press heal while different part gets, parts get aggravated. So when you rotate benching in again, everything's nice and fresh. So just basically on the trade-off between momentum and novelty – we have the result is that, you know, oh, every, I don't know, three to six months, sometimes even shorter, um, you probably want to change the movements you're focusing on as the big fundamental movements and uh, start progressing on those. So, for example, um, you know, you, you basically do tons of squatting for months. And then when the squats start to peter out for you, you switch to a lot of leg pressing and maybe just some you know, front squats afterwards or something for a couple of months. You make great PRs on those, make great strides. And then when you come back to squatting, you'll just have bigger legs from the leg pressing and the front squats, and you'll be fresh again for squats. There'll be some very novel for you. You'll get a lot more growth out of them. Then you start uh, ascending on squats again, and you make a change and ascend to the other exercises, make a change, and it's kind of a stepwise pattern. Eventually, you just uh, continue to get very, very big. Uh, that works, I think, very, very well. Uh, a big caveat there is you have to pick exercises for your variants that are all hardcore and effective. You know, it's not like, oh, for the next three months, I'm doing BOSU ball squats. Well, that shit doesn't do anything. So you're just pissing away three months, right? But if you choose from exercises like for legs, for example, front squats, uh, high bar back squats, uh, full range of motion leg presses and hack squats and barbell lunges, geez, you can do two of those at a time per, per mesocycle and, and rotate a new one every now and again, and you have plenty of variation, and they're all super effective moves. So like for chest, you can do flat dumbbell press, incline dumbbell press, incline dumbbell or incline barbell press, and flat bench press. And man, that's a lot of variation, but it's all really awesome hardcore movements. And it, you, know, you get enough work with each one of them to really hit your stride, hit momentum, get PRs. And then when it starts to get stale, you move to another movement and really start milking that movement out as well. So what would you say to somebody, like for me, for example, right? I was squatting for a while. I was uh, powerlifting for a bit. So that was like my main thing. I was getting really strong. Um, and then uh, I said, fuck, let me try what, what Mike's talking about. And I focused on uh, the leg press being my main or the primary leg exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, then I went back to squatting and maybe this is pretty normal. Maybe it's not, but my squat, obviously, the amount of weight I was able to push, maybe because I haven't squatted in so long, had decreased, right? Mm-hmm. So I understand volume, but most people might say, hey, I'm weaker now. Like, was that a smart move? So what would you say to someone who's concerned that maybe that lift kind of decreased a little bit? Or maybe is that even standard? It's totally standard. And, and the reason especially happens very, very reliably for advanced lifters Um the, one of the reasons that you're better at squatting over time is that you are um, more muscular, right? But another reason is that your neurologically your nervous system, especially your brain, is used to executing that technique very, very well. If you move away from squatting, especially hard squatting for a while, your brain tends to forget how that technique works and how those muscle activation patterns work. But you have even more muscle than you've ever had because you've been training the leg press, et cetera, super hard. So your body has to take a couple of weeks to relearn how to use especially that new muscle that you're not used to. Once it does that, your squat will shoot beyond what it's ever been. And it, that fresh stimulus will take it not only from back to the normal numbers, but it'll, it'll shoot beyond your normal numbers. So for example, if you, let's say, do 12-week blocks and you're pretty advanced, let's say you do 12-week commitments to each exercise, in the first 12 weeks of coming back to squats – in the first four of those weeks, you're probably just going to be doing, getting great workouts. Cause you know, I mean, do you remember how it felt to come back to squats? You probably did a couple sets and you're like, holy shit, my legs are blown up like in a super special way that I don't even remember. So you're still getting great hypertrophy, but your nervous system is just starting to catch up with the technique. After about four weeks, you'll probably be hitting similar numbers to what you used to be when you, when you did squats almost fun primarily. In the last four weeks, you're going to be hitting all-time PRs, which would have never happened if you would have kept squatting. Because if you'd have squatted originally for 12 weeks and then 16 
and then 20, you might have been a little bit of PRing, but it's just so stale at that point that not much happens anymore. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's absolutely an investment. It is taking one step backward to take two steps forward, 100%. But you know, a lot of bodybuilding's like that. A lot of training's like that. For example, as you well know, if you try staying super duper lean and you never get even a little bit of fat, you just won't gain any muscle. So there's some guys that are like, well, I don't ever want my squat to go down. And it's the same guys that say like, well, I don't ever want to like lose my crispness of my abs. Good luck being skinny and, and, and small for the rest of your life. You know, the guys on the Mr. Olympia stage, and we've seen their off season pictures, they don't always look like they do on the Mr. Olympia stage. A lot of times they look a little bit more marshmallowy. Now, is there a way to take that stuff too far? That's bad. Of course, but you got to have some kind of a trade off in another analogy I can make is some who's a workaholic that really likes to do a good job at work and they're so addicted to work and doing a good job that they never take weekends well, they're just going to burn out after a while just be useless at work but taking weekends is great even though you're not doing work on a weekend your brain is and body is getting refreshed so you come back on monday you've got all kinds of ideas tons of energy and you're a great employee you know what i mean mm-hmm. so for someone's like well hold on a second but mondays are weird because like you know it feels weird coming back to work on monday after a weekend especially if you've traveled you're like what the hell like where are all my pens and pencils? What's my fucking password for the computer? All this stuff. It, it feels weird. There's a little bit, a couple of hours there on Monday that's transitional time. But that time is well worth the time you've invested to really back away and refresh everything. So it's one of those things. That, and I think that's, that's where the true wisdom and complexity of training for muscle size lies. It's not everything that you can see and directly walk to. Their strategies. Uh, another really, while I'm on the analogy bandwagon here, you know, Let's take a Lord of the Rings analogy. Let's say you see like an army of orcs or like a division of orcs walking and you're hiding in the forest. The most linear thing to do is just go out and attack them, right? Like your job's to kill orcs and they're evil. So let's just go, you know, mess them up. But in reality, you know, what would a wise, you think to yourself, what would a wise warrior do? He'd count how many troops he has on his side and be like, well, we're going to lose this battle or at the very least lose half our guys. That's stupid. Let's wait till the orcs. Let's not do anything yet. Let's retreat back into the forest, which a lot of warriors would say, well, that's dumb. You wuss. Like, really, you're running from them? Like, we're not running. We're waiting until they're tired after their march and it's nighttime and they're drunk and confused. That's when we go attack them. And you'd be like, well... I guess that's a good point, but a real warrior goes for it. Yeah, but a real warrior is dead half the time. You know what I mean? So it's one of the situations where people are like, I don't like to lose strength on my squat. Then you have to ask them is, what is it that you want to always be your strongest or do you want to get huge? Because those two at some point split apart and then it's up to the individual to decide. Yeah. And, and that's something that I kind of experienced. Um, and that was a great analogy, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but, um, all right, so since we're, since we're on progression, right, and we kind of want to just dive deep into progression, I've had guys talk about, and this is kind of has nothing to do with, with what we just spoke about, but I think you elaborated on that enough for people to get a good understanding. Um, so I've had guys, like, for example, who, you know, they'll, they'll bench press and, and then they'll do their overhead pressing. Um, and then on another day, they might, you know, do their overhead pressing first and the bench press second, something to that degree. And then they notice that they're, um, or, or I'll give you a better example. Someone's training their whole mesocycle, for example, might be like bench first, then overhead press. Okay. Then the next time that, you know, on the next, whatever they're doing the opposite, maybe they go overhead press then bench and the bench is not as strong as it was before now to me that makes sense because obviously you've already stressed the hell out of your shoulders triceps you're taxed and so obviously but could you talk about why that's not why even though it's still a decrease in your strength why you're still getting bigger by progressing that way totally well so you know a lot of it is about priorities what is your goal when you put bench press first? It's to really get your pecs and your shoulders and triceps are probably not going to grow a whole lot. Um, even if you have shoulder press afterwards, they'll get hit plenty, but it's like, I want my pecs to go really fast and maybe I want my triceps and shoulders. If I'm an intermediate to grow a little slower, when you flip the script next time and you do shoulder press first, what you're really saying is I want my shoulders and triceps to grow the fastest this cycle. But since bench cannot be overloaded as much because it is a second exercise now, I'm not going to expect huge gains in my pecs, slower gains. And that's totally okay. But remember, there's no, <laughs> there's no golden method for prioritizing everything all at once. 
that's ridiculous. Something's got to be, you know, it's like a line of children to get lemonade. Someone's going to be in the front of the line. Someone's going to be in the back of the line. And even if there's no line, you know, the lemonade stand seller can't physically have enough arms to give everyone lemonade at the same time. The lines and order and priority are just in, is embedded into the structure of the universe, right? So one of those things is just a matter of choosing. And the good news is because we can alternate mesocycles, you don't ever have to be like, well, I'm just going to get my triceps and, and shoulders bigger forever at this rate. And my pecs will never catch up. Well, whenever you feel like your pecs are not caught up, you go back to doing bench presses first and maybe some dumbbell flies after and then some light shoulder presses. So when we do our exercises per, for any session, we have to realize that the first exercises get the most priority and thus those muscle groups tacked in them will grow the most. And then all the other exercises after get less and less and less priority. And, and that, that can result in a, a number of different uh, actual effects, but at least we know what we're getting ourselves into. And if we want to prioritize something, geez, like, you know, Joe Weider was talking about this stuff like 80 years ago. Um, whatever you want to prioritize, you probably should train it first within any given session because that's when you're fresh and you can provide the most overload. And there's a lot to that. You know, you'll see in, in one pet peeve of mine, you see bodybuilders that say, you know, I really need to bring up my rear delts. And they're like, oh, sweet. They're like, I started a new delt program. You want to see it? And you're like, yeah, let me see it. It's like, okay. <laughs> okay. overhead dumbbell press side laterals then side lateral superset and then three by 15 of machine rear delt flies and then i leave it's like wow you really fucking did it you know you saved the worst for last i guess it, it, it's almost like coming to a birthday party and be like i'm gonna try to eat as much cake as possible and then you eat all the other food first get super full and you're like oh this slice of cake is difficult didn't you say you wanted the most cake like yeah but you gotta eat the other food first that's nonsense whatever it is you want to adapt first you do that first so if you really want to hit your rear delts you better start with rear delt flies, then get into some kind of compound reel delt exercise like a, a barbell face puller or a cable face pull. And only after that, get into the side delt and, and maybe do some overhead pressing. So I think a lot of it is when people say, oh man, I'm not really progressing if I put shoulder press second. You're progressing probably a little bit in most cases. You're just not progressing as fast. And that's okay because there's no way to progress optimally and everything. I like a lot of times people ask these questions. They're looking for the golden fleece that isn't there. And, you know, I'm sure you get these questions all the time. Guys are like, how do I get gain muscle and lose fat at the same time? You're like, oh, my God, you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> the question should be how do I get a lot of that over the long term? And the answer to that is periods of getting leaner on purpose and periods of getting muscular on purpose without worrying too much about how lean you are. But, you know, again, nobody likes to take the two steps forward uh, or one step back approach. Yeah. So, and, and I know because a lot of the, the guys who are going to be listening to this, um, one of their, you know, we talked about your analogy or just your example with the rear delts, right? A, a lot of guys want to build bigger arms, right? I mean, I think probably 95% of guys who go to the gym want bigger arms. Nobody turns bigger arms down. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's just say as an example, right? Cause I, I want to give guys actionable advice. Let's say I said, hey, Mike, I really want to bring up my arms because in reality, my chest is a good size. Um, my shoulders are decent, but my arms are just lagging behind. And would you say, hey, you probably should do your back work first since there is biceps involved and then and then do your isolation movements like a typical back and biceps workout? Or would you say, hey, do your fucking curls first? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it depends on how satisfied they are with their back development and how much they really want to prioritize arms. To me, one of the most important things about giving training advice to people is uh, is like with, with any kind of like sort of like supply and demand customer service situation, your number one job is to find out what it is the person actually wants. It's not what you want. It's not what you assume. It's what do they want. And a lot of times people don't really know what they want, so you have to talk to them to clarify that because I've had – boy, I'm sure you've been burned on this 100 times yourself – um, some kids like, Hey, you know, I want to get my arms bigger. And you're like, okay, great. So you do bicep curls first and then you do dumbbell curls and then you do your back movements. And they're like, okay, great. And then three months later, they're like, yeah, I, I didn't like that. Cause I was like weak for my back movements. Like you fucking idiot. Of course you were. It's cause you want big arms. We're not trying to train your back. Like, yeah, I want a bigger back though. And you're just like, Oh my God. So you just didn't really know what you wanted. So I think it's really good to be upfront with people say, look, we can do a 50-50 split where we can design a workout that, for example, Monday you do back first, bicep second. Thursday you do biceps first, back second. That way you get a roughly equivalent growth over the weeks with both. If they want that, that's great. Uh, they may want just mostly back. Or if they really say, no, I want biceps, and you're like, okay, you do realize your back gains, your back won't shrink during this time for the next few months, but your back gains will be minimal. So don't even look back there because there's nothing new to see. If they go, dude, I really don't give a shit. I'm totally, that's super cool. 
arms, arms, arms. Then shit, Monday and Thursday, they're starting with biceps. And then on their tricep, on their pushing days, they're starting with tricep overhead extensions or skull crushers and then getting into close grip benches and then getting into dips and then maybe doing some dumbbell work for actual presses. And, and, and it's just a trade-off. It's like, I don't want to grow my chest as much. I'm going to grow my biceps more. So uh, there's, there's the actionable advice. And number one, part of that advice is really figure out what you want. The good thing is there's, there's no pressure. You can always change your mind, but you don't want to be one of these people that flip-flops every other day. You know, some guy, some people are so addicted to the pump and constant progression and everything. They'll do like one week or two weeks of bicep work and then look at their back and they're like, oh, shit, my back's not improving. And they'll just go back to training their back a lot. That's not really much of a plan, you know what I mean? Um, you end up doing kind of a little bit of bicep training. And we, one thing we know about training that's very likely is that sequentially training the same focus for a while, weeks and weeks and weeks, allows that the results of that training to really solidify much more than if you just change up stuff all the time. So look, if you've committed yourself to bigger arms, at least finish one mesocycle of that, at least a month of training. And then if you really start freaking out about your back being too small, you can start training back for a month. But I would recommend, you know, something like two or three months at least. Then you have way bigger arms than when you started. And you can always bring up your back. That's not a big problem. As long as you're honest with yourself, you have priorities to choose. Mm. That's awesome, man. It, and it's funny because, you know, I think a lot of guys, they will say, you know, I want bigger arms. And then, like you said, once they start doing their back, they're maybe their rows after their curls, they're a little bit weaker. They might think, oh, shit, my volume is, in a sense, going down. So that means it's I'm going to lose my back gains. But you're saying that's just not the case. As long as you're giving it some, somewhat of a decent stimulus, you'll main, maintain that muscle. Oh, boy. Well, so here's good news. And this is a volume landmark I haven't mentioned. I mentioned maximum recovery volume. I mentioned minimum effective volume. Way below that usually, especially for intermediates and advanced people, is maintenance volume. The amount of training, especially an intermediate or advanced person needs to do in order to maintain their gains is very minimal. Like you can do six total sets of back per week um, and still maintain the same fundamental back size. Like your pump will go away. The muscles won't constantly be sore and full of fluid. So they'll look smaller after about a week of doing that. But second week, third week, fourth week, fifth week, they just look the same size. And whenever you come back to training back between minimum effective volume and MRV, you know, a lot of training, prioritizing it, back's just going to explode. Another piece of good news is if you back off on muscles every now and again and just put them down to their maintenance volume, they resensitize to the very process of muscle growth. So if you've been gaining, if you've been smashing your back for months and months and months and years, and now it's really starting to stall out on you, put it on maintenance volume, smash your arms for a couple of months. Then when you come back to back, it's going to be like, holy shit, overload training. What the hell is this? And it's going to grow like it's never grown before. It's like, you know, the, that's how you use variation. It's also called exercise deletion and replacement. You basically change your priorities to automatically put something on the back burner and then you alter it. And that's how you get the best gains over the long term. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. Um, just as a side note, like how many muscle groups would you say that we're able to kind of prioritize totally. at a time. That's a great question. It's one I've answered a couple of times recently. So I think that these are just, these are very, very rough guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, and they change a lot for individuals, but I'd say beginners, people who've been training up to about three years of training, they can prioritize everything because their muscles are so relatively small and weak. Their whole body recovery is not going to be endangered by them just going ham on everything. So for the, you know, nobody gets overtrained in the first six months of training. This is incredibly difficult to do. So hundred percent priority and everything when you first start training. But then again, remember we're talking about the minimum effective volume being so low when you first start training, that might mean like eight sets in every movement. That's nothing, but that's as far as it'll go. That's a huge priority. For intermediates, um, I think about uh, two-thirds of the body should be prioritized or could be prioritized at one time. And uh, that's up to about three to ten years of training. Um, two-thirds of the body can be prioritized. One-third needs to be put on the back burner. For advanced individuals, it can be uh, – the, the average rule is about half, I think. So you, half your body you put on the back burner, half you prioritize. Some people can get away with more. Some people can get away with less. But those are real basic guidelines I'd have to recommend. So, if you, for example, if you've been training for 12 years and you're still trying to push everything as hard as possible all the time, it's unlikely that you're going to be getting your best results. You're basically just meeting your minimum effective volume for everything because if you try to really go to your MRV – you the total amount of work for your body would destroy you. I mean, imagine a cycle which prioritizes 
legs and chest and back and biceps and shoulders. Every time you come to the gym for every body part, it's total war. You'll never survive that if you're an advanced individual. Also, let's talk about the weights advanced individuals are lifting and the kind of volumes they have to do. Like a beginner might be able to lift bench 135 pounds for eight total sets you know, of, of, of 10 reps or something, and that maxes out their chest growth. So of course you can add a leg priority to that and not notice. But if you're a really high-level bodybuilder, you're benching 365 to 405 for sets of, you know, uh, 10, and, and, and all of a sudden you have to do 16 sets on average per week to do that. You don't just add a squat priority cycle to that. You will break in half. So it's one of those things where it's, it's it, it, you know, all these numbers are recommendations, but when you try it yourself, go on the low end and then try to work up from there. And you'll very quickly find out what, how much is too much. Sometimes you find out before you even go into the gym. So you get to the gym and yesterday you had, let's say it's the last week before your or second to last week before you deload. You had a massive quad session two days earlier. Your quads are still sore. Your pecs are damn near functionless because for what you did to them yesterday. And now it's time to go as heavy as possible in upright rows and curls for your shoulder and bicep priority day, which for some damn reason you're also prioritizing. You're going to do some warm-ups and be like, I can't even be in the gym today. Like nothing's moving. I'm so messed up. You feel it at a systemic level of fatigue. Then you're going to realize, you know, for the next cycle, like better just stick to two body part prioritization versus all of them. Does that make sense? Yep. 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 It's so funny, man. Every time I listen to you, I I just get fucking pumped. (laughs) Well, at least it's good for one of us. (laughs) Because, um, because, I just love your view versus a lot of other guys, you know, they're very like, um, they kind of just beat around the bush. And and I know one of your main things is like, I just want to get big as fuck. And like, that's like, that's like what you teach. Right. And that's like a lot of what you talk about is like, dude, if you want to get big as fuck, then this is what you got to do. Totally. I think my, one of my things is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say in the trenches because it's a really lame way to say it, but it's true. I'm trying to get big all the time. That's all I think about. And I also have all these degrees and shit and all the sciencey shit. But to me, the sciencey shit is, is not, it is cool for its own sake, but so is a lot of other science. You know, if I want to read about cool science, I just read about like electronics or something. For me, one of the reasons I read the science of, of muscle and strength enhancement is because I want to apply it directly and everything that's esoteric and weird and super complicated and doesn't work. I don't give a shit about it, man. I mean, we're all chasing the same gains. So, you know, any answers that I have that are like wishy-washy and don't make any sense, why the fuck would I tell them you that that's not going to help anybody grow and the thing is i care about other people's growth i care about mine as well so all these things that you're asking me is shit i've thought about for a really long time because it applies to me you know what i mean like i want to grow so i think to me it's super simple but but thank you so much for the kind words yeah man no and thank you for taking the time you know out of your schedule i'm sure you're busy as all hell but um i'm busy with work but i don't have any actual friends so mostly i just sit home and cry um so now i you know let's get to spend time with digital friends (laughs) <laughs> so just because a lot of people will hear this, right. And, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of great information in this episode, um, but they're going to go back to the gym. They're going to continue doing whatever they've been doing. Could you kind of just give them like a, like a parting piece of guidance, like just kind of like reassurance. Like if this is happening in your training, you're probably on the right track. If this is happening, then you probably want to change it. If over the long term, you're getting not mega sore, not not sore, but intermediate, like a little twinge of soreness in most muscle groups, if your workouts are hitting you pretty hard, but not super crazy hard all the time, and if you are getting stronger for multiple sets and multiple reps, you're doing something right. So for example, if you're bent over rowing and you're using good technique, you used to bent row 225 for sets of 10. Now you're bent rowing 245 for sets of 10. Same good technique. Something good's happening. Your back doesn't magically just add abilities. The nervous system can't really help you much with repetitive efforts anyway. So if you're doing 5 by 10 or something like that with rows, the only way to improve that is just adding muscle. That's one of the reasons your body adds muscle. It's like, well, shit, we can't rely on the nervous system anymore because it's tapping out everything we have already. On the other hand, if you're training and you're kind of progressing and kind of maybe not, and you look at your journal, if you don't keep a journal, a a really bad idea. But if you look at your journal and you haven't really hit a whole lot of rep PRs in a long time on everything, you gotta you gotta reanalyze some stuff because you know how fundamentally all of us. How do we get a big chest? Well, if we can incline bench four hundred five for five sets of ten, 
you just can't ever do that without a big chest. And it's not just that that gets you to big chest. It's the work up to it. So whatever you incline now, let's say it's 185 for sets of 10, aim to have it at 205 by the end of the year. And then by the end of next year, maybe 225. And you keep improving like that on average in a bunch of different exercises and muscle groups, you're going to get big. If I joined myself you know, five years ago for a workout with me today, I would tap out really early. I would look at my numbers and be like, there's no way you're doing that for that many sets and reps. I'd be like, yep, sure am. But then I'd look at myself and go, holy shit, you're twice as jacked as, as you used to be. Well, that, that's where do you think that jackness uh, is coming from? It's coming from the progression of being able to do more and more. Awesome, man. Well, I, I think I've taken enough of your time. Fucking awesome, awesome. Great information, a lot of actionable stuff. And um, before we go... I know you mentioned you have that book coming out. Did you want to tell us a little bit? I'm not curious to hear a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. It should be coming out in early October. Um, it's going to be called, I think, How Much Should You Train is mm-hmm. the main title. And it really just, it's a very, very um, deep uh, theoretical book about the volume landmarks, maximum recoverable volume, minimum effective volume, maintenance volume. It defines the living shit out of them. It gives you examples of how to use them in sport. It tells you how they're altered during dieting, right? Because when you're dieting super hard, we know your maximum recoverable volume is going to drop and a bunch of the other landmarks change too. It's a huge exploration of how all that works. At the end of reading that book, I think people really have an understanding of, okay, how much volume should I be training with? How should I be manipulating it? How much is not enough? How much is too much? And how do I measure that in my own training? So I think it's going to be a sweet book. Warning, it's going to be pretty intellectual. So um, if it's your first muscle strength book, don't make it your first. Try, um, uh, you know, Greg Knuckles and Omar Souf have the art and science of lifting. And then Eric Helms has the muscle and strength pyramids. I would highly recommend those books. And uh, my own book co-authored with a couple of uh, folks, uh, scientific principles of strength training. If you get through those books, then the volume book will make like a world of crazy sense. If this is your first time reading anything other than flex magazine, it's going to be confusing uh, unless you're super, super sharp. And then, you know, shit, uh, best of luck to you. Are you guys making this, a physical book. No, it's going to be an ebook first. Sorry for, hey, motherfucker, we don't live in 1880 anymore. What you doing? Lighting up a candle and shit, reading a book? Get out of here. I'm the fucking guy with the books, man. <laughs> Nerd. If we went to the yeah, same high school, I'd push you over and all your books would fall out and be like, oh, <laughs> you're trying to get big, huh? Reading muscle books, nerd. Um, oh, shit, I wrote one of those. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, no, so I think, um, you know, eventually we'll get to print editions of a lot of books. We'll probably do like a mass printing. But for now, the ebook stuff is guaranteed for sure. And then maybe down the line, we'll do some printed stuff. Cool. So by the time people listen to this, or at some point, someone's going to. Very, gonna... yeah, very soon. All the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so where can they go get it? Renaissanceperiodization.com. And you can also follow RP at, at RP strength on Instagram. Uh, they'll be posting about the book there, um, at RP, Dr. Mike, that's me on Instagram, mostly pictures of me with my shirt off and very unchristian like things. And then, um, my Facebook, Mike is It's a public account. So you can come and troll me, send me messages. Um, I post a lot a lot of training and nutrition and intellectual type of stuff on Facebook. Um, so Facebook is, uh, if you scroll through my wall of posts that I have, uh, I post a lot of my deepest shit on Facebook, which sounds really lame to say how far we've fallen, but, uh, sorry, I don't have a scribe writing books for me with the fucking, with a crow on my back, Edgar Allan Poe over here. So, uh, but, uh, that's, that's where you can find me and all my stuff. And that's where the book will be posted. Very cool. So for everybody who's listening, I know you're going to want to follow this guy. I'm going to link to everything that he just mentioned in the description of this video. So you can go and check him out. I follow his stuff very closely. I'm a huge fan. I can't wait for the book to come out. And uh, again, Mike, thanks for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for having me.